The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing. <clears throat> Let me read God's word for us as we're looking at tonight in Ephesians chapter 5. If you'll turn there with me, and if you'll arrive there at that point, we've kind of laid this out a little bit last week, but we're going to take a closer look at it this week. Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, look with me in verse 21. Notice what Paul arrives in this walk of life for Christ with a concluding exhortation, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he starts looking at how we submit to the Lord and one another in relationships. First marriage, then in chapter 6, family, parent-child, then in in society, between the working, employer, employee relationships. All of those things will be laid out for us. What we want to look at is this matter of marriage. And here's what it says in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy And without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Would you keep your Bibles open there to Ephesians chapter 5? Now, so if I can go ahead and let you know, in this study of marriage that we're doing, we did our first sermon on, well, we did an introduction, and then we looked at marriage and creation, and then marriage in the fall of sin, what sin has done to marriage and relationships. And now we're looking at marriage in terms of redemption, this theology of marriage. So creation, fall, and redemption. 
In this matter of redemption, I propose to do two sermons, and I propose to do both of them from Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to do kind of a, um, not a 30,000 or 50,000, but maybe a 10,000 overview of this text tonight. And then we're going to back up to it tomorrow night, and we're going to do, we're not only going to get down to ground level, we're going to go subterranean uh, on the text uh, when we uh, get back next Sunday night, or not the next Sunday night, but, um, well, whenever it is I get back, okay? I'm, I'm going to take some people to Israel, hoping to get back, not sure, but if I do, uh, Lord willing, I'll be able to get to you, and we'll finish that out. And in that one, we're going to do some not only some biblical principles that underline this general statement that we're making tonight about a gospel Christian marriage, but we are also going to take a look at some, well, just some best practices, or at least some suggested best practices for you and for us as a congregation. If I was, if Cindy and I were in a couple's discipleship group, that's, this is what, that, that sermon will be exactly what we would be discussing and sharing in that context. So I want to ask you now to look at this with me and here's how we're going to start looking at it. You will note that this sermon on Christian marriage, now you know that's where we are because the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are devoted to tell us as Christians who we are in Christ by, by God's grace through the love of Christ. Then starting in chapter four, he, he moves from having declared the blessings of God for the elect in Christ, chapters one through three, he goes to the responsibilities of the elect in Christ how we ought to live our lives. He starts by looking at our personal life, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Then he begins to talk about that worthy walk, putting off the old man, putting on the new. And he begins to talk about our relationships, and he develops those relationships within Christ's church in Ephesians chapter 4. He looks at the matter of worship. Then he looks at the matter of lifestyle being a statement of worship. And then he looks at so many things, these series of statements about the Christian life. Let him who, uh, let him, um, uh, let him who steals, steal no longer, but let him labor with his hands, performing what is good, so that he may have something to give. Uh, the, uh, put, let no unwholesome word, redemptive labor, giving, stewardship. Let no unwholesome word, redemptive communication. Let no unwholesome word proceed from out of your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And he keeps developing all that, and now he goes goes into relationships as to how we, in submission to Christ, submit to one another, not only in the body of Christ, but in our relationships. And he goes to the foundational institution of, um, uh, of the foundational institution of creation, which is the family. And, and then he begins to deal with us about the family, but don't miss this. When Paul starts discipling the Christians that are going to receive this letter and he starts teaching on marriage, he doesn't start with a gospel marriage. He starts with a creation marriage, marriage according to the creation mandate. A gospel marriage, a redeemed marriage, 
is one that returns back to the sanctity of marriage in creation. Now, it will build on it as well, but it will return to that. It doesn't start a new concept of marriage. Christianity does not develop a new doctrine of marriage in in the name of the work of the gospel. No, the work of the gospel reclaims the sanctity of marriage. And one of the things that becomes obvious to us is because Paul starts with the doctrine of the creation of marriage, then there's something that we are reminded of. If you'll look with me at Ephesians 5, just for this, the, uh, would you look there in Ephesians 5 and go with me to, um, uh, go with me in Ephesians 5 down to, uh, uh, down to verse 21. Uh, I'm sorry, the verse 31. Therefore, see the quote from Genesis 2.24. When we started, we said we're going to look at a theology of marriage. What is marriage according to creation? Well, he's simply quoting Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, that's what he does. Now, let me just also mention to you. When Jesus is challenged about marriage and about divorce in the Gospels, and he answers the question, he goes back to Genesis 2.24. Now, why am I belaboring that? Well, number one, I believe the book of Genesis, that's why I'm doing this whole series, Foundations from Genesis, God's blueprint for life. I believe everything that we need foundationally for life to the glory of God in Christ is found in the book of Genesis. The origin of time, space, and matter, the origin of sin, the origin of grace, uh, all of those things are included for us and and declared for us in the book of Genesis. That's why I believe it is the most attacked and in some cases the most hated book in the Bible. And if there's any area that it is hated, it's Genesis 1 through 11. And if there is any area in Genesis 1 through 11, it's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That, that is the place of constant assault, both outside the church and inside the church where apostasy has begun. The very place that would confront our, our rebellion against God in society is the very place where the attack is given to us. So, so that's why Jesus goes right. Now, what does that tell you? If Jesus is quoting from Genesis 2.24, do you think Genesis 2.24 is important for the doctrine of marriage? Hello? Yeah. If, Genesis, if Paul is quoting from Genesis 2.24 the way Jesus quoted from Genesis 2.24, do you think the doctrine of marriage in Genesis 2.24 is important that we should know that as believers? Absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, know this. He is affirming the historicity, the transgenerational, and the transcultural truth that's revealed in the book of Genesis. He is affirming the historicity of the book of Genesis. He's not treating it as myth. He's not treating it as allegory. He's not treating it as fable. He is not treating it as speculation. He is treating it as a historical narrative that this is what God did to begin space, time, and matter and end space, time, and matter.
And, th- and therefore, the book of Genesis is transcultural in what it reveals about who God is and what God has done as creator, redeemer, sustainer. Those three great acts of God. So that's number one. It is an affirmation of the historicity and transgenerational and transcultural account of marriage. And it is also a declaration of the sanctity of marriage. Now, we live in a society right now that has said to God, we will define marriage the way we desire to define marriage. You can be assured God will not be mocked. You can break God's law, but when you break God's law, eventually it will break you. You cannot build a society on the whims, the fads, the fashions, and the perversities of a culture in rebellion against God. You just can't do it. There will be consequences to it, and it won't be long till they'll be felt. So what do we remember? Remember our very first study on the theology of marriage. We're being brought back there by Paul. And when we're brought back there to Genesis 2.24, what do we know about marriage? Well, here's where we're going to start on a Christian marriage, the creation foundation of what is a marriage. A marriage is a covenantal, monogamous, heterosexual, conjugal relationship. A marriage is, let me put it this way, a marriage is a monogamous, heterosexual, conjugal, uh, covenantal relationship. That means it has a covenant with a sign and seal of that covenant. It has a covenant with a sign and seal. It has promises. It has commitments. It has covenantal promises and covenantal commitments that are being made. And those vows, covenantal vows and statements of intent signed and sealed by a God-given sign and seal of the covenant. Now, hang with me on this. I'm going to go ahead and give you this, and I'm going to come back and try to establish it for you. So what, are, what, is the, what is the relationship? It's a man and a woman. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. So what is, the, what is, the, um, what is this covenantal relationship? It's between a man and a woman. It is a heterosexual relationship. It is between one man and one woman. It is a monogamous relationship. And the man and the woman are joined in the deepest of intimacy, spiritually, emotionally, biologically, physically, and sexually. They become a one flesh. And God has so created it to be such. God has so drawn us to be such. And God has so established it. So what is the sign and seal of the covenant? I know you're sitting there and saying, well, Harry, I had to pay some money for it. It's called a ring, right? Nope, sorry. That's just kind of a cultural convention we do in a a wedding ceremony uh, appropriately, uh, to be appropriate in in, uh, public affairs. But actually, if you'll listen to the marriage that I do, here's what I say. 
upon the consummation of this union before God, I pronounce you man and wife. Now, I'm fully aware in the eyes of the state when the uh, vows are taken, then the marriage is legal. But the God-given sacrament of marriage, now listen, Harry just said marriage was a sacrament. Harry did not say marriage was a sacrament. Harry said marriage is a covenant. A covenant has a sacramental sign and seal. I didn't say marriage is a sacrament. I said there's a sign and seal. What is the sign and seal of the covenant of marriage? What is the sacramental union? It is the consummation upon the marriage bed. Now, I'm fully aware that there are issues that happen because of sin in society that people can't um, obviously get, uh, sometimes cannot get to that point of consummation. Therefore, um, therefore, intimacy can be expressed in multiple ways, and I am not going beyond that. A, I'm in a pulpit, and B, I get embarrassed, so I am stopping right there. But normally, what we say is the marriage bed. Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all. Fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So the sexual relationship is either, is either shameless in the sanctity of marriage or it is in rebellion with the shame and guilt that comes outside of marriage. Notice the writer of Hebrews puts it in two categories. The honorable sexuality of the marriage bed. And that's what happens in a wedding ceremony. If you had traced out marriage in the Old Testament, you would see it begins with a commitment. You then move to a ceremony, and then you move to the marriage bed and the consummation. So those are the very three steps, the commitment uh, and the uh, consensus, and then the ceremony, and then the consummation. And therefore, uh, what happens in that wedding ceremony is we have set up a biblical covenant of marriage. Thus, the marriage bed becomes the sign and seal of the relationship. That's where the consummation has taken place. Now, folks, I'm fully aware, as I said, we live in a fallen world and there are things that hinder the full fulfillment of that in this world. But that's the basic uh, layout that the Scripture gives us. And so you find, for instance, with Mary and Joseph. They had the commitment, they had the consensus, but they had not had the ceremony, and they had not had the consummation. Now, it was still considered a binding contract. The commitment was. That's why she would be called a wife. But but Joseph knew there was no way that he could be the father of this child because there had been no ceremony and consummation. But notice, notice the commitment carried much more weight than our engagements do. To have finished the commitment, it would have had to have been considered a divorce because it was a public commitment that had been made. But there had not been the ceremony, the wedding feast, and there had not been the consummation in which they would become one. 
Thus, he was dealing with the issue of the announcement that she was uh, expecting. Of course, we know what she was ex- what she was expecting was the uh, the birth that had come from the virgin conception by the Spirit of God, who had placed that within her womb, and that would be the birth of the Savior. But what I want you to see is the fact that you start with a Christian marriage, not by building what we think is a Christian marriage, but going right back to creation. That's where Paul starts in his discipleship of the Christians at Ephesus. All of these pagans. Let me take you back to Genesis 2.24. Here's where we're going to start. And so now they not only start there in discipleship, and they have now this understanding that marriage is a monogamous, conjugal, that is a, 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 a union that takes place of intimacy and thus the sign and seal of the relationship. It is a heterosexual, monogamous, covenantal, conjugal relationship that they are to have. Now, the text not only brings us back to the sanctity of marriage from creation and the historicity of it and the transcultural nature of this institution and the transgenerational nature of this institution. It not only takes us back there, but it also takes us to, uh, it also takes us, um, it also takes us to the reality of the fall. This text is acknowledging there's a fall. Now, how is it acknowledging that there is a fall? Well, look at it. Go back with me. Go with me back through the text. Wives, submit yourself to your own husband as to the Lord. Now, I want you to ask yourself a question. I want you to lay it aside. You can go ahead and answer it, but lay it aside tonight just for a moment. Why would Paul tell the woman to submit and not only submit, but to submit to your own husband? Why would he say that? Secondly, he then says, as a rationale, the husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. So she is called to submit and she, now, I'm going to get to the qualifiers. Do not throw anything at me yet, okay? I understand the qualifiers, but I want to start where it starts, and that is to submit, and then to submit in everything. Why would Paul bring focus to that? Why would he do that? Then, if you would, go to the next text. Husbands, love your wives. Why does Paul immediately go to the matter of loving our wives? And then, as the wife received an example, an illustration in the bride that is the church's relationship to Christ to guide her, now the husband gets an illustration, and that is the bridegroom Christ for his bride. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And now that love is defined and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might set her apart, that she might become special and having cleansed and then to do what? To cleanse her in the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now he gives him a second illustration of love. 
The first illustration is to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The second illustration is to love your wife as you would your own body. Now, unless the insanity of sin has taken over, nobody mutilates their own body unless they have been carried away by sin. No, what do we do? We take care of it. Would y'all like to know how many multi-billion dollar industries are built on that? I mean, they've got everything. I mean, there are... My grandmother, I have no idea how many creams my grandmother put on every night and every morning. I have no idea. I was just... But they were just stacked up there. And she used every single one of them. I mean, we take care of our bodies, don't we? I mean, that's one of the things we're doing. Now, listen, our bodies are groaning. They're not going to last. We're going to get a new body. Praise the Lord. But we're told to, we're told to, uh, take care of our body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And bodily discipline is of little profit. Now, it doesn't say no profit. It is of some profit. So we are told, just like you would take care of your body, once you're married and you're one with your wife, then you take care of her. She is part and parcel of you. You don't think any more outside of your relationship with her. You started this when you were leaving and cleaving. I, we leave and we cleave. If you don't leave, you got one plus one equals six. If you don't cleave, then you got one plus one equals two. The, the creation says one plus one equals one. How do you get there? You gotta leave and you gotta cleave. And when you leave, you now have started a new family that the previous immediate family becomes your extended family and no longer your immediate family. And in your relationship with them, your relationship with them is never apart from your spouse. It is always in the context of your union as a husband and wife. So yes, I did lose a daughter when I gained uh, I did lose a daughter, and I didn't just gain a son. But once they were united, now I get both of them, and I become a part of that extended family that they now have as their family, just as they're part of Cindy and I and our extended family. That's what we begin to understand. That's so crucial to understand that. Leaving and cleaving to become one. And then once you're one, you never do anything in life as a husband apart from the full knowledge of your union with your wife. She is part and parcel of you as your very own body. And that's what he's telling us to understand. So in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes cherishes it. So what does that tell you? Your love for her ought to nourish her and cherish her. Now watch, your sacrificial love moves her spiritually. You wash her with the water of the word. 
your your um, your daily love is a love in which you are nourishing and cherishing her in your relationship and in her responsibilities in life. You own that 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 um, that calling of sacrificial love and of nourishing love in the life of your bride, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he brings us, uh, he brings us to these, to these multiple responsibilities. But know what he assumes. Why would I have to wash my wife with the water of the word unless there was growth that she needed in grace? And why would I have to be reminded to love my wife? And why would she need to be reminded to submit to me? Now, some of you are so brilliant, you've already answered this question. You were here when we looked at the fall. And you were here when we went to Genesis chapter 3 and the curse of sin. And in the curse of sin, what was the curse that came upon Eve? The Eve principle. In her marriage because of sin. That Eve and her daughters would be born with an impulse and a compulsion as predators of their husband's position. Your desire is for your husband. Remember just over one chapter in Genesis 4 when when God told Esau... Is not sin crouching at the door like a lion? Its desire is for you. It's predatorial. It wants to prey, P-R-E-Y, on you. Well, that's the curse of sin when we're born with a sin nature from the seed of, of Eve. I mean, from the line of Eve. That when we're born in that sin nature, the woman's compulsion is to take the man's position And to take the man's responsibility. And then the next text says, but he will rule over you. Now that word rule in the Hebrew is a noun, a verb, they translate rule. The noun form of it is the word tyrant. So if you take tyrant and verbalize, make it a verb, what, what, what does it become? Tyrannize. So what do men do in their sinfulness? Well, they use their biological makeup and they then tyrannize their wife. If sin is reigning in their life, one of two ways. Either ignoring them and leaving them out to fend for themselves. Or by what? Or by... Or, or, are, if not ignoring them, then intimidating them. And intimidating them physically or verbally uh, or emotionally. What dastardly acts of sin. Now do you understand why Paul in the Christian marriage lays before us men two responsibilities. Number one, you're the head of your wife. As Christ is the head of the church. You're called to lead her. How does Christ lead? He serves. He takes the towel. And he washes 
the feet of the church in the upper room. We are called to servant leadership, not dictatorial leadership, not tyrannical leadership, but leadership with a servant's heart. Even our shepherding leadership, what does the rod and the staff do in the hands of the good shepherd? They comfort what does, the st- what does the rod and the staff do? The rod is used to tend the sheep as the hook rescues them. And the rod is used to defend the sheep as the pointed end wards off the adversaries. We are called to servant leadership. Our wife does not exist for our fame our applause are simply to meet my needs. When you get married, it is a call from Christ to shepherd, to serve, to lead with servant leadership and lead with a shepherd's heart. And the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then you're called to love her. How do you love her? Servant, shepherd, leadership, and sacrificial and nourishing love. Just like the leadership you give to your wife is servant leadership and shepherding leadership. The, the, um, the love you give to your wife is sacrificial. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's a sacrificial leadership that you give. And then, what else is it that we're supposed to do? I promise, next time, you know, best practices, um, recommended, not necessarily, I've done them perfectly by any means, but I'm going to try to pastorally recommend it, but now I want to get the principles laid down. And I want you to see these principles in light of the fall. Why is it that you and I are called to give servant leadership and shepherding leadership. Shepherding leadership that you give up your life for the sheep and you tend and defend the sheep. Servant leadership that you take the towel to serve. Why is that? Because within us is an old man that we would tyrannize our wives, either by ignoring or intimidation. And we are not, we are called to say no to that. We are called to have a countercultural marriage that's not like the world's. And we don't just run through wives until we get the one that we can, um, uh, that we can manage to just do whatever we want them to do. No. When we have made a commitment, it is one man, one woman, one life, and our calling is to love them and lead them. Now, what's their calling? Well, their calling is, I'm not going to compete. I'm not here to conquer you. 
I am here to come alongside of you. That's what submission is. You, where did, where does she come from? Eve came right from his side. Why? Because she's supposed to, she's not, she didn't come from his feet, not under him, not from his head, she's not over him, but from the side so that she completes him. And where is the side? What is the rib? It's that which is closest to the heart. So we cherish her. Heart of my heart. I loved, I loved Martin Luther's name for, his nickname for his wife, uh, Prime Rib. That's exactly what it ought to be for us, this matter of Prime Rib. This is one that we cherish and we nourish and we nurture and we give ourselves to love them. We're willing to sacrifice to love them. We want to love them and we want to bring a thoughtful, cherishing, nourishing love into their life. That's what God calls us. That's the journey that Christian husbands put themselves on. And what does the wife do? She submits and she honors and respects her husband. The Bible says the words, the words of, um, the words, the words of bitterness from a wife against her husband is like cancer in his bones. And probably, just as men sometimes resort to their resources and their size and their strength as tyrants, sometimes women can very powerfully resort to the facility of a tongue. That absolutely destroys that which is in a man's heart. What I want you to see is the responsibilities don't come for just out of the blue. You see, because I believe that I, in a, there is a sense when I'm supposed to submit to my wife. And I certainly want my wife to love me. The text centers on my love and my leadership for her. The text, but notice there are other passages of the Bible that tell her to love me. But yet in this text, he focuses on submission and honor for the woman and her relationship with her husband. What is he doing? He's combating the fall. He's telling you God's grace in our marriages is greater than sin's curse. Therefore, instead of men who are tyrannizing, we got men sacrificing themselves, serving the, serving and, and man, and loving their wives with servant leadership, uh, shepherding leadership and sacrificial love and nourishing love. That's what we can have by God's grace, only in God's grace, only by His Spirit. But that's what we can have. Look at how distinctive that would be before a watching world. Then secondly, we have Women who do not desire their husband's position. They realize, praise the Lord, we're different. And we're not only different, we're different for a reason. Yes, we're both made in the image of God. Yes, together we bear the image of God. But we are made different for a reason so that we can unite. We're not just a partnership of repetition. When God said it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, he didn't make another Adam. He made Eve, the Isha of Ish, the reflection. 
And therefore they were joined together as fitly made physically, biologically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, and sexually. And so what God did wasn't just come up with a facsimile of Adam when he said it was good it was not good for him to be alone. But he made him a corresponding helpmate. So here, so here are the responsibilities of a wife and the responsibilities of a husband. Let me repeat them. I'm coming back next time. Servant leadership uh, to give spiritual direction to our wives. Sacrificial love to nurture and, and uh, care for our wives. The responsibility of wives to honor and respect their husband and to be a helper completer through submission to come alongside of him. And what becomes the blessing? Well, the blessing is we get back to the creation, the glory of the creation. When God made man, male and female, and joined them in marriage, what did he say? It's very good. So it's good for us to get back there. But now we can even go beyond there in the face of the adversity of a falling world. We can, we can establish a counterculture before the world. Listen, brothers and sisters, I long for this culture to again embrace some facsimile of Christian marriage by common grace in our culture. I long for that to return. But I don't expect it until God's people build Christian marriages that honor the creation mandate of marriage and that overcome the power of sin in relationships by the power of God's grace. So men don't tyrannize. They lay down their life. They're not dictators. They're servants. They're not tyrants. They are willing to die. And so we see women that refuse to get caught up in the game of outsmarting, outwitting the husband. But what we want to do, and boy, I've had the privilege of a pastor of seeing this, and I am probably the number one exhibit A. Brilliant, gifted women who never overshadow their husband. But they find a way to honor them and respect them so that in the gates of the city, the people speak well of him. Those kind of marriages is what produces a world that at least wants something like it. Now the world says we don't, we want anything but that. But we have to stay on our game in terms of what God has called us to be and to do. So I've got, uh, I've got just a couple of concluding uh, observations, and then uh, I'm, I'm done, okay? Out early tonight, but don't tell anybody, all right? So let me, let me just give you a couple of observations here. Here's the first one. Not only do we get back to the creation mandate, not only does God's grace overcome the fall by producing men who love sacrificially and, um, and nourishingly and cherishingly and who lead as servants and as shepherds and women who do not 
predatorially attempt to undermine their husband, but in fact, or idolize their husband, but in fact, come alongside of them and honor them and respect them and, uh, and, and submit that is, that is become the helper completer. Not only does that happen, and when that happens, we begin to present a testimony to the world of what, what that not only enjoys in marriage, but how it sets up our next study on the family and parenting. Because that contributes to it. But here's something else that I just want you to think about. We get to walk away from the first Adam and embrace the second Adam, Jesus. That's what we get to do. When God came looking and calling them to account, did you eat? You remember that Adam said... It wasn't me, it was the woman. Now we know when the woman gave Adam the fruit of the tree, where was Adam? He's with her. What if Adam had said, Eve, God's word says, Eve, wait. You just misquoted God's word. What if he had sanctified her with the washing of the word? And then when God says to Adam, Did you eat? His answer is, "Um, It was the woman whom you gave me. She gave me the fruit to eat. What if he had said, yes, I did. Don't take her. Take me. That's what the second Adam did. Don't take my bride. Take me. What if that picture and that profile was embraced by God's people. Can I tell you, and I can just tell you by looking at the scarcity of people here tonight. I understand graduations and all that. I understand that. I'm not being a, you know, preacher Scrooge on this. But here's what I know. You know what we all think? There's a book out there that's going to give me three steps and everything will be all right. Nobody wants to dig down in the Word and understand creation, the fall, and redeeming call of Christ. Nobody wants to do it. We would love to have somebody give us five steps, three helps, four observations. Folks, discipleship is hard work. You got to get into the Word, and you got to get, and you got to rely on the Spirit of God, and then you got to love one another well. And the Last observation I would give you is this. This Christian marriage that we're looking at, and we're going to go down to the subterranean level from this text next time. This Christian marriage that we're looking at, uh, how can I say this? Uh, Let me put it this way. On the one hand, is foundational for the flourishing of society. Listen to me. What we're doing to marriage 
what we're doing to marriage, you can forget nuclear bombs, missiles, and everything else. That won't destroy us. What we're doing to marriage and the family right now, that will destroy us. And it won't take long. You can't rip the pillars of the creation order out and expect it to stand in the vicissitudes of this age. But here's what I do know. I do know that this is important for the, as a foundation for your life. As singles in temporary or extended singleness interact with married couples, they need married couples like this. As they anticipate marriage, they need to have others that are here that can mentor them. In our marriage relationships, young couples need older couples. And older couples need oldest couples. And I didn't say any of you were in the oldest category. But we need that in the body of Christ. But here's the biggest deal I want you to see. Here is the picture of the Christian marriage. And what does Paul say? He says, I want men to love their wives. And I want wives to honor and respect their husbands. And this mystery is great. But I am speaking of Christ and his church. Let me try to put it this way. Paul does not give the picture of saving grace from Christ the bridegroom and the church is his bride. He's not giving it as an available illustration. Well, let's see. Holy Spirit, could you help me come up with a good illustration of Christ's love, covenantal love for his church? Oh, marriage. That, that'll work. No, no. God made marriage not only for the well-being of humanity and flourishing of humanity. He made marriage from the creation to be there to proclaim the work of redemption. His covenant love for his covenant people through his son Jesus. Marriage was put here at the creation in anticipation of the fall and anticipation of the work of redemption in Jesus Christ. We have a sacred institution not only designed to bless us and from which we bless the Lord. We have an institution that was designed to tell the world of God's covenant faithfulness to his bride, his people. And may we lift it up out of the mud and mire of this world graciously, confidently, and intentionally. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to uh, uh, just to go into your word. And uh, I pray that you would bless my brothers and sisters, not only in their life as we walk through this together, but as they give this away to others, sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters and friends and people they're discipling or people that are discipling them. Please bless them as they share and encourage others, but help us reclaim the glory and honor of the sanctity of marriage one marriage at a time and may the world see the truth and stability and power 
of your word at work in the hearts, lives, and relationships of your people. And may they see Christ's love for his bride by looking at our relationships as bridegrooms and brides for Christ, to point to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.